0: Hey, let's dive in this morning, Trish, let's stop fellowshipping. I better be careful, she's up next week teaching. I will make sure I'm not in the room for whatever she's saying. Uh, I have a confession this morning. Uh, I have been feeling of late and asking myself the question and This is not that sense of, oh my gosh, the senior pastor is about to confess, so when I say that, I'm sure you're freaking out. Um, No, it's just an honest um, insight to some of the things I think about. One of the questions I've been asking myself more lately is, what is this teaching really doing? Now, I'm not asking for you to come up to me afterwards and go, oh my gosh, it's life-changing, thank you. I, I really want you to hear, we really evaluate a lot of saying, how... Are we helping instruct, inspire, or inform you in your faith? Because, friends, the day that this becomes just a nice Sunday morning service, get a little message, and then leave, and it does nothing for you, I'll be done because I'll realize I've, I've run my course. One of the goals that I think we have here, and I've said this often to people that ask, I'm trying to put a pebble in your shoe every Sunday morning. I'm trying to put a rock in your shoe that you cannot avoid. I want want to cause you to think differently about your faith. We started this series because uh, a talk show host just said this week that more people check their Facebook account than they do read their Bible. Christians, Christians are checking their Facebook account more than their Bible. And part of what I feel like we we know, and that's true around here, when we sit with people in counseling, whether it's pastoral counseling, staff counseling, elders, a key question will be, are you reading this Bible? Are you reading the book? And often I find people looking for direction, insight, understanding, their spiritual life is empty, they're struggling with sin, and we'll say, listen, this book was left for you written for you not only for direction and protection and an understanding provision but by the nature and character of god for you to understand more about how he's wired you how he's created you and what he's created you for and so what we find is especially with the bibles today most people have uh, a lot of other things that they feel are more important in their life to do and yet every week we'll spend hours preparing and getting ready for a service to teach you this. Friends, can I, can I charge you this morning? Can I, can I challenge you? Uh, can I dare you? This book will change your life. If you're not reading it, it's probably going to be hard pressed to have that happen. It, this book will change your life. Is it a challenge? Yes. Is there a lot in there? Yes. But scripture says very clearly it will unlock more of how God's wired you. The Holy Spirit will begin to use that in your life and to change you. Now we did that because we wanted people to re-engage in their Bibles and so that's why this series in the summer called 10. And I would just encourage you if you've not been here for these previous weeks, gosh that's what's great about technology. You can go back and watch those. Again we don't There's nothing beneficial for us for how many people are doing that. But we just know this is really good stuff for you. It's helpful for you in your spiritual journey. So we've been talking about the Old Testament. We've spent five weeks breaking apart the Old Testament into five basic parts. And it's really the story of God's original covenant to the descendants descendants of Abraham. We know that the creation, then the fall, and then God's restoration story... That he's promising something to come. Now, I'm going to do something uh, to to help put you in context to this gap. Because the next five sections are the New Testament. The New Covenant. Not to say that the Old Covenant was done away with, but it's going to be fulfilled and expanded. And God is going to, to bring a new answer to the story of brokenness in his creation. And that's through Jesus. But we know in this period there's about a 400-year gap of where we don't hear much from the scripture writers. And there's a sense that God wasn't speaking or wasn't around. And so we don't know that for a fact, but we just, there's called the intertestamental period. Now, I don't know if you can, can completely kind of grapple what that would have felt like. So let me take a stab, and then also I think we just spend a moment thinking about this in our current situation. How many of you have turned on the news of late and felt a weightiness about the evil in our world? I mean, it seems like every week there's a one-up, right? It, it, if, if Satan had the, the puppet strings to all these things, in the, it's like every week is a one-up, right? From murders to shootings to now what happened in Dallas, for why it happened in Dallas, right? Because. Cops killing other people, now people killing cops, but it doesn't end there. It's terrorism around our world. It's evil around us. Could you imagine 400 years of that environment? 400 years of where the Persians take and pillage the Israelites. They take them captive and then return. Their temple is torn down. The Maccabean culture, Then finally, as we get into the Gospels, Rome is now rule, and Israel's in captivity again. I don't know about you, but I feel the weight of our current world. Now, scripturally, we're we're not any different than we've ever been. We've been as sinful and as evil and as dark. And the prince of this earth as Satan is and will be overthrown by Christ, but we feel that weightiness, don't you? So we sing this song that, that Bobby and Molly sang for us. Even so come, Lord Jesus come, we wait, we wait for you. Like there's sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about the message and I'm kind of prepping my head and I'm praying. But sometimes I can't just, I have to sing the song, that's one of those songs for me. Especially in light of our world. It's, oh, you're coming soon we're waiting for you to return to fix to restore friends that is the weight of what we enter into the new testament but i want to pray right now because i know it's not just dallas it's all over our country and our world i know it's even in our church from from people who have gotten cancer from news about families finance insecurities fear there's so much and it's a sense of we have one thing this morning that we can hold on to. One that knows better than all of us. And that is God himself knows there's a hope. And we have that. And I want to just pray for this this morning. God, we, we do wait. We wait for you. We know you're coming soon. In that waiting, Father, I pray, Lord, this morning that we wouldn't just sit... But God, that we begin to proclaim the good news that there's a hope greater than any evil in this world. And that's Jesus himself. God, maybe we'd be inspired this morning by the stories of these, three, or these four writers this morning in the Gospels. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our Old Testament launches us in this waiting period, and then we have the Gospels, the New Testament. New Testament is a record of historical events of the saving life of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, resurrection, ascension, and the continuation of his work in the world through the Holy Spirit. It is the fulfillment of the events anticipated by the Old Testament. That's our New Testament, which lands us in the Gospels. The Gospels simply mean is the stories, the actual stories of Jesus living this life here on this earth In physical reality and it's good news it's good news we'll talk about that in a minute but I want you to to understand there's four Gospels there's Matthew Mark Luke and John and often we get confused about okay there's four writers and they don't write chronologically and some of the stories are a little bit different they're not contradicting they're not wrong but they're four different views how do you explain that? They're, they're writing about something they were eyewitnesses to. This is important for you to know. There were more than just these four eyewitnesses. In fact, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses around the life of Jesus. They say that up to 120, up to 5,000 that were watching the life of Jesus. And so if I were to give you this morning the task of writing a one-page summary of the message this morning, and we were gonna post it on the website tomorrow morning, Wouldn't it be interesting to read all the different viewpoints? This is similar to, there was a cinematography kind of um, discovery or technological breakthrough back when The Matrix, the movie, came out. And I don't know if you ever geeks that way, but I am a sci-fi geek. I like sci-fi movies. And so there was this, this whole thing called bullet time. The principle was to set up cameras all the way around an actor, And so you've probably seen this effect where they can get shots of that actor from every angle of point. So they would jump up, right? They would freeze it. You've seen it on TV. And they spin around that. Every camera, a unique picture. So here is the the raw bullet time footage. This is how they did it. Uh, Just for your, I don't know, information. All those black dots are all cameras. So the actor would be doing whatever stunt they were doing. Every camera is going through the picture right now as you're seeing it. It's taking a picture. So we're kind of at camera view watching that. Every view different. Alright? This is similar to the Gospels. The Gospels are a unique view for that disciple or that follower of Christ. And so you see they've taken the cameras out but the same concept all the way around. We'll wait around here for a moment. Look, he looks like he's a great actor or stunt person, but he's on a cable. They've cut it out. Now, there's the finished effect in the movie. So you ever saw the movie, this is what he's He's dodging. But look at the different angles. Now, what's important for us to think about as we're seeing this, the Gospels are different angles to seeing the life of Jesus through a different lens. Matthew, a Jew. Mark. Luke, a physician. John, very different Angles to the life of Jesus, all right? Paul says this in Romans about the gospel and and the power of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the very power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So it's not just the stories. The gospel means it's the good news of Jesus. First for the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so this morning, we dive into the four Gospels. You have a green card there, pick it up. Um, how many of you have struggled to take notes on the cards? You're just not note takers. So you were those like straight A students, you didn't have to take notes. Um, the more spiritual of us will take notes. <laughs> I'm joking and joking. Uh, you don't have to take notes, we actually post these later on, but the the purpose is for you to kind of get some structure and idea about uh, the gospel layout. So first, write a six. This is our sixth week of ten. Trisha will be teaching next week the book of Acts on its own. Um, No pressure, one book, 40 minutes to fill. I don't know how she's going to do it, Um, but she'll be Holy Spirit led, right? Right? There you go. the Gospels right up there on the top and put good news in parentheses and Jesus and I want to say just about this if if anything irritates me in, in our Christian culture it's the Christians that feel like they're supposed to bring hellfire and damnation and shame and fear and guilt people into the kingdom I'm sorry friends but I don't sense that after Jesus dies and resurrects and comes again, he says, bring the good news. The harshest language that comes out of the Gospels in the New Testament are not to people who don't know God. Guess who it's to? Those of us who do. The, The hard speaking goes to people that say they're Christians and aren't living that life. So if anything should have freedom this morning, I should be able to unload on some of you who are say you're Christians but you're not living it. So I, get, I struggle sometimes because the Gospels are this story of great news. This is great news. You don't have to earn spirituality in this life. It's given. You, you don't have to worry about your eternity because God has a way for you. This is the great news of the Gospel. I love this. I love this. So you're gonna write four boxes and a line. I'm gonna teach you a little bit different this morning, but we're gonna start right with the the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's goal, if you write underneath there, is that he wants you to know that Jesus is the King. Jesus is the King. Why is this significant in his angle, his, his camera angle about the life of Jesus? Well, let's look. First of all, his audience is to Jews. Matthew, a Jew himself, wants to write to a Jewish audience. Why is this critical? Because his goal is to give evidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah. You know what Messiah means? It means promised one, anointed one. It means one that is coming. Jesus is the promised Savior and the Jews are doubting that and he wants to give claim to no no he is the messiah he is the one one of the saddest i think pictures that trish and i have had when we've gone to israel is being at the wailing wall and seeing very pious and very religious orthodox jews crying out for the messiah to come because see the difference between that person and and us is we believe he's, we're praying for him to come the second time, meaning he's returning. They're still waiting for the first time. They've missed it. Scripture actually talks about that, that the Jewish nation will be blinded in not seeing and recognizing the Messiah. So it's even prophetic. So Matthew's goal is to prove that he is the promised one. How does he do that? Well, I know it's small writing, so I'll repeat it. First bullet is 53 Old Testament quotes, 76 references to the Old Testament. Matthew is saying, remember when Isaiah said this? He fulfills it. Remember when Ezekiel said this? He fulfills it. He's trying to prove to the Jews who would have read what? All the prophets, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have been experts at that. And so Matthew is trying to prove it. He also mentions 35 times the word kingdom of reference that Jewish culture would have known waiting for the kingdom of God to come for him to redeem and rescue Israel. Now, albeit they would have thought politically, they would have been looking for a political restoration. So Matthew is leveraging that. Also, he'll use son of David nine times. Why is that critical? Because you remember all the way back when it says the line of the Messiah will come through who? David, he's gotta be a son of David. Matthew's whole goal is to connect them that this is the Jewish Messiah you've been waiting for. Now, interesting about Matthew, guess what he is? He is called by Jesus out of being a tax collector. Tax collector, I'm gonna get to it in a bit down the road here, but he is, it's one of the most loathed and hated positions in culture at that time, they're slimy because they—they they basically. I heard someone say, "Still is, still is," <laughs> uh, because they could charge extra tax. Matthew is redeemed now. In Matthew's text, I didn't say this the first service. This is extra. Um, he is the gospel that talks most about money. Obviously, so because money was the one thing that owned him. And he wants to be very responsible talking about finance. So what's the passage we're going to look at? Now I'm going to show you pictures. The reason I'm going to show you pictures this morning is I want you to kind of grapple with the reality. Jesus lived for real on this earth. In real places. When we get to go to Israel, they say there's 40,000 historical sites that are referenced in your Bible. 40,000. You're in the bus, or in this Mercedes bus, and you're like, all of a sudden, you're going, whoosh, it goes by, it says, David killed Goliath. And you're like, stop the bus! <laughs> but there's all too many things to see. It's like, there, there's so much. I want you to know that he really lived. And so in Matthew 16, one of my favorite passages, we're launched all the way to a, a, an area, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus decides to take a, a field trip with his disciples. Now Caesarea Philippi was built by a Caesar um, for Philip and it is a pagan worshiping center. The little windows carved in there were gods were put in there. Um, they were seen as doorways into uh, connection with these gods. There was a pool of water they would sacrifice people in. So this is a real place. Now this would be like this morning us saying we're gonna I'm gonna take you guys we're gonna all fly to Vegas. We're just going to stand outside Vegas and I'm going to have like this teaching lesson, right? Now, if you could just multiply Vegas maybe a hundred times worse, this is Caesarea Philippi. It would also have been awkward for a Jew to be there, so we don't know actually how close he got. But this is the whole scene where Jesus says, who am I? Who do they say I am? And let's look at that, Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region, Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Remember, this is Matthew trying to tell a Jewish audience he's the Messiah. He wants this story to be recorded. Verse 14, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Jesus asked, But what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter, who likes to talk often and first, says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Notice he says, the Messiah. Matthew wants his readers to know, Peter acknowledges that he is the one we've been waiting for. Do you remember what he says next? Probably you guys should go read it, maybe tonight or this afternoon. He does say this, Peter, uh, Jesus will say to Peter, no one revealed that to you. You didn't learn that in class, you didn't learn that at church from a pastor, you didn't learn that from maybe God revealed that to you. Friends, just as a note, you can't convince people into the kingdom. At some point, the Holy Spirit, Trisha's is going to talk about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God reveals Himself to people. And this is what happens to Peter. So that's the Gospel of Matthew. Let's look at Mark. Mark's goal is that you understand that Jesus is a servant. His camera angle, so Matthew's was that that Jesus is king, almost like all the way across and king would have been important because what israel was looking for a king a king to restore israel that's important mark wants you to know that jesus is the servant the ultimate servant why does this make sense well because his audience is roman christians mark's audience are christians that are being persecuted in rome And they would have not had some of the Jewish background and not some of this idea. But why would that be important that you know that Jesus is a servant? Because if they're in Rome, how is the Roman government ruling them? With an iron fist. Heavy-handed. Authoritarian. Cruel. Mark wants them to know, oh man, this Messiah isn't going to lord over you he wants to serve you had to blow their mind so his goal is to present the life and the teachings of jesus uh mark's not a disciple mark's not he's not one of the original disciples he's 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 been around he's an eyewitness of jesus but he's not the one of the 12 he's he records the most miracles in his gospel He's also the first gospel written, chronologically in time. He's the first one to write, and so there's a lot of theological work done on this. And they say that all of the book of Mark is used by Matthew, Luke, and John to write their gospels. They're kind of taking his as, hey, could you give me a copy? Because I'm going to start, I'm going to write my own. And I'm going to take what you wrote, and I'm going to expand and develop kind of what I saw and what I understood and so they say all of Mark is quoted in these other gospels except minus 31 verses that's it interesting for you to note. so this is Mark and Mark wants to tell these Roman Christians that this Jesus this King wants to actually serve you and so we were teleported now to Mark chapter 10 which takes us to the Jordan River the second most disappointing thing I saw in in Israel is how many of you have read the stories in the Old Testament of the Jordan River and the nation of Israel crossing this massive river? You with me? That is what we showed up to and I thought, really, God? <laughs> I know it's still a big deal, but I later found out that geographically the, the climate has changed and all... There used to, the river used to be much right wider and at flood stage. So it was helpful for me you know, just the miracle got really cooler. Um, otherwise, that was just really underwhelming. Anyway, so Mark Chen, this is where Jesus actually crossed that often to go teach, and so it says then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these are brothers, James the, uh, and John, and they were called the sons of thunder, came to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, which is pretty arrogant what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other on the left in your glory. Now remember, this is a big issue with Jesus and the disciples. Pecking order. I know none of us struggle with comparing ourselves to other people at all today in any facet of our lives, right? We're completely free of comparison of anyone else in our lives. This is exactly what's going on with the disciples and It's going to irritate these other disciples. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized, the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? And so listen to the answer, how ignorant they are. Sure again, they don't understand that means torture and crucifixion on a cross later that these disciples will actually go through. It says in verse 41, Then the ten heard about this. The other disciples, they became indignant with James and John. They are mad at him. Jesus called them together and said, Now, just a side note. I didn't say this the first service. I've got to say this here. I find it interesting. Sometimes we think they're mad at him because they're saying, Oh, how dare you guys talk about that? It's so wrong. A lot of commentaries will say they're mad at him because they asked the question first and they're not going to sit at the right hand and left hand of God. Like they should have asked him first. They're mad for that reason. Very interesting. Jesus called them together and says, You know that these are who regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, the Romans, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know what you're going through, right? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many friends Mark's gospel creates a radical picture for Roman Christians to say this God sends his son not as an authoritarian but as a servant and he even goes lower as a slave to you to, to serve you in that kind of a posture that'd be mind-blowing This is the purpose of of Mark's Gospel. So let's pick up now Luke. Luke is another camera angle. So we have Matthew and we have Mark. Now we have Luke. Luke comes from a very different perspective. His goal is that you know that Jesus is your savior or rescuer. He can fix you. Why am I saying that? Because Luke himself is a physician. He's a doctor. And we know that doctors, in some way, need to carry a little bit of the God complex, right? Because they're doing some crazy stuff to our bodies, and they've got to be able to do all this. Well, they fix people. And Luke's goal is to say, listen, here's what I do, but I want you to know that there's one that's the physician of your soul. He is your savior. So his audience is to Theophilus, this name of a person we know very little about, but also to a Gentile audience. Now, he is also not a disciple, but he is a a disciple of Jesus, but he's a disciple of Paul. Paul we'll hear about, and we talk about the epistles um, and the letters of the churches, but he is a disciple of Paul's. Now, Luke, his goal is to present accurately. You'll read that I want to accurately present all the facts as a doctor would all the, the important information to not get super emotionally involved in it. I want to just give you what happened, but I want you to know that Jesus was the perfect man. We know that Jesus comes as what? Fully God and fully man. We don't quite understand how that works, but he experienced what you experienced emotionally, physically. And so he's a doctor. He is the only Gentile. This is the news for me. This is the first thing, time I learned this the only Gentile uh, to write in the Bible. Very interesting, Luke is. And he is going to spend a lot of time on the birth of Christ and the childhood of Christ. Important that you understand his, his development from as we call him a son of Adam or he was born just like everybody else and he grew up like everybody else but he was perfect. So Luke will posture us in Luke chapter 19 and what we see here is Jericho. Um, These are some of the remnants of Jericho. You remember the story of Jericho, right? Joshua fought the battle in... Jericho. Anybody remember that song? More people this service, yeah. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. The walls came tumbling down and there's like songs for that in Sunday school. So Jesus is actually... Jericho still exists in this time in the New Testament. He's there. I'm showing you this picture because He was there. He was at Caesarea Philippi, crossing the Jordan. In Galilee, he's in these places. Luke 19, Jesus enters Jericho, was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So remember I talked to you about Matthew as a tax collector. A tax collector had this role. They were one of your own people commissioned by the roman government to collect a certain amount of money from a village you could tax anything and you could put on as much more as you wanted to that means i could tax you for crossing a bridge or a river i could tax you for getting in your boat and porting out of your boat coming back in tax you for your fish i could tax you for everything this is why there's so much around the scripture, around a little bit of that sense of tension they felt from tax collectors. This was Zacchaeus. Luke wants you to know that this God will save and rescue even the worst lost Gentile non-Jewish people you could imagine. And here he is, Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector and wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus, but was so short he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming on that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once, welcomed him gladly. Jesus is not only king, he's not only servant, he is savior. That can save tax collectors. That can save wealthy, greedy, lost people. Friends, never give up hope of your prayers to reach friends or family members or people around our world that you think are lost and unreachable. The God of the universe can do this. This is Luke's goal. He wants you to know this. He wants you to know he's a physician and he's given you an accurate account. But there is a greater physician. As he will say in his gospel that Jesus came to seek and save those who are sick. Not those who are healthy. Last gospel, gospel of John. John's goal, he wants you to know that Jesus is the son of God. His camera angle looks a little bit different and his audience is all people. Why is this important? Because he wants, this is the gospel that we typically send new believers to. We send them to and we say because it's it's so broad, but it it includes everyone. And John does include everyone. John's theme often is around love. That this God loves you. This son of God loves you. So many different passages about about the love of God. Remember John 3.16, the famous passage for God so loved the world. John wants you to know this. His goal is to present Jesus as the son of God, a loving God that would send his son. Now John, brother of James, they were called the sons of thunder, brother of James. But there's also a unique piece in John that I I wanted to call out. John wants you to know about the, the significant deity of God, that this is the son of God. And if you look through the gospel, often there are these I am statements that Jesus makes about himself, that I am. And John points these out, ones like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. Jesus will mention all these, and John wants you to know wow, this is the Son of God, the deity of God. This is who he sent, and I want you to know that he loves you. So it sends us to John chapter 14, and our last place is the upper room where they had the Last Supper and the washing of feet. And this was another, I've shown all these disappointing places because this is the third, like, disturbing place. We're so excited to go up there. Only to find it filled with cats and smell of cat pee. Yeah, so we didn't want to stay in the upper room very long because it was disturbing. So Steve Gert was in here last service. He goes, "Now I know why Jesus washed their feet." <laughs> uh, I don't think so. That was right. Nice, nice observation from Steve, but. So the upper room, this is where Jesus was. They, they believe this is where the disciples gathered and had this supper. And So we find ourselves in John 14, it says, where he's telling his disciples, do not your, let your hearts be troubled. Uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare this place for you, I'm coming back to be with you, so that you may be where I am. This is the thing he says here at the end. He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't even know how to get there. Famous verse. First verses i ever learned as a kid. I am the way, Jesus says, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John Want you to know this Father and Son are together. And they together are bringing a love gift that will save and redeem the world. So these are the Gospels. This is this period in history that there's Roman rule, there's struggle. And really, trying to figure out how to respond this morning, how to, to, to call you into communion this morning with these these Gospel stories really sends me probably back to Matthew 16 and is this. Who do you say Jesus is? Because, friends, this morning, if you say Jesus is King, Jesus is Servant, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is the Son of God, that should change everything about you. Because I think we casually think about Jesus But I don't know if we allow the reality, the answer to this question to fully sink in to who we are. This morning as you go communion, can I call you to ask yourself that question? If you're finding your spiritual life dry this morning, maybe it's revisiting the question that Jesus would ask you. Who do you say I am? Not what does everybody else say, but who do you say? What does your life reflect by your answer. Sally Lloyd-Jones says, towards the latter part of the Old Testament writing, she says this, many years later, God was going to send another. This is that intertestamental period, right before Jesus is born. It says, God was gonna send another messenger with the same wonderful message, just like Jonah. And just like Jonah, he would spend three days In utter darkness, Jonah in a fish, Jesus after being crucified in death. Says, but this messenger would be God's own Son. He'd be called the Word. Remember John one. The Word became flesh, and it says because He Himself was God's message. God's message translated into our own language. Everything God wanted to say to the whole world was in a person. And his name's Jesus. And he really lived. He really walked this earth. And he really has a message for us this morning. As we go to communion, maybe we ask the same question of ourselves Who do we say Jesus is? Father in heaven, I pray that we're struck to the core of our, our belief in our hearts and minds to answer the question. And God, if we can say that you are your son is Lord of our lives, then God, a deeper question must be asked is, why do we still live the way we do? God, convict us, stretch us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.